What do you do if your life's falling apart and you can't even drown your sorrows in junk food like any reasonable person would? So I was having like this meltdown and my friend Kyle was like, that's it, I'm coming over. I'm just gonna, we're gonna hang out, I'm coming over. He walks in, I'm like, okay, you caught me. And he's like, what? And then he lifts up this box of Triscuits. (laughs) He was like, this? Let me read the ingredients. Cracked whole wheat. I just, I was trying to drown my emotions in something. That's all I could do. Like, that's it. I'm going to the store and I'm buying Triscuits. This is a segment from comedian Tig Notaro's stand-up special, Live, recorded about a decade ago. It's like through all of this, like, oh, I'll, I'll call my girlfriend. Oh, we broke up. Oh, I'll call my mother. Oh, my mother died. Oh, I'll go buy some food. Oh, I can't eat anything. You know what it is? I'm a drama queen. <laughs> Tig, relax. And I'm like, oh, wait, this is really happening. I want to jump a few months before when things were going very differently for Tig. Not some big span of time, a few months. It's 2012 and Tig Notaro, the comedian, was fine. Health, family, the relationship, all good. She'd been cast in a film and was in her trailer when suddenly she starts feeling sick. Sick enough that the studio puts up a cot for her to rest in between shoots. I remember talking to my mother and she was like, you know, make sure to have orange juice, just kind of that, <laughs> that typical thing people say that they think is gonna kind of somehow magically fix things. Which it doesn't. So she goes to urgent care where they diagnose her with pneumonia and they offer her the standard miracle option. And I had gone to urgent care and was given some antibiotics. How much did you know about antibiotics in general when this when this first happens? Nothing. I was at my girlfriend's house. Again, this is a few months back. The relationship's still in full swing. And I remember I had been taking a bath because I said to myself, I just need to get up and get going. That's what I need to do. And I took a bath and she was like, how are you doing in there? And I was like, I'm good. I'm actually feeling good. I think I just needed to get up and get going. And, And so she was like, great. And then I got up out of the bath and I get dressed and it's all kind of Not that I needed to get up and get going. And I collapsed on her stairs. And um, she took me to the emergency room. In the hospital, Tig's given a round of tests. But the symptoms aren't related to the pneumonia. A doctor said, listen, we're going to test you for this thing. It's very likely you don't have it. It's usually very young children or elderly people or very sickly people. And he said, and you're none of those things. And then they came back. There was a heaviness of like, oh my God, you have this. And I had never heard of it. Never heard of C. diff, short for Clostridium difficile, roughly translated as difficult small spindles. The bacteria was currently weaving knots in Tig's digestive system. I described it as like, if the strongest, largest human being on earth was kicking me in the stomach repeatedly, and there was no relief. And did you think that there was a relationship between the antibiotics use and and getting C. diff? One million percent. One million percent. Tig's doctor couldn't confirm any relationship, but they did say that antibiotics may have contributed to her vulnerability. But while painful, the C. diff was also signaling something else, 
Because while Tig was neither young or old, her body was in fact not healthy. She was living with stage 2 breast cancer. In the last few years, medical studies have suggested the body can respond differently to antibiotics when it's weakened by cancer. Put simply, the antibiotics kill both good and bad bacteria in the gut biome, which in turn leaves the body open to the growth of undesirable bacteria, like C. diff. All of it just turned into cancer. But I do have moments, it's so weird when you're, like, I was walking to the grocery store, and I was just like, what am I doing? Why am I even buying food? Why am I trying to sustain this? Nourish my body just to stick around to get more bad news? (laughs) Gotta keep myself alive so my ears work and I can hear horrible things. (laughs) I'm Omar Lakad, and this is Without, a show where we tell you horrible things. What do we do when the catch-all drug we've been using for the better part of a century stops working? The answer is equal parts scary, fascinating, and, to be honest, pretty gross. There's no one around to tell you otherwise, but for almost all of human history, a scrape could mean a death sentence. The same is true of childbirth. Then we stumbled onto this drug and suddenly became the closest to invincible we've ever been. But we're likely at the end of an era, the golden age of antibiotics. It landed like a gift on our doorstep, we used the hell out of it, And it was only a matter of time before the miracle drug started becoming less and less miraculous. On today's episode, we'll learn how antibiotics got less effective. We'll find out why new ones aren't even being made anymore. Plus, the story of a dying doctor who, when antibiotics didn't work, was subjected to an untested virus most people have never even heard of. That's ahead. To be clear, antibiotics aren't going anywhere. They're just losing steam. The thing that they do is kill bacteria. But bacteria has been adapting. In the process creating what are commonly known as antibiotic-resistant superbugs. And unless something drastic changes, it's been projected by the UN that by 2050 someone will die of a superbug every three seconds. After all, bacteria has been around for millions of years. Antibiotics? They really are kind of a blip in human history, like up until we had antibiotics. We had nothing. Maren McKenna is a science journalist. She's written a number of books about viruses, medicine, and how they shape the world in unexpected ways. She's also had a lot of shots. And I used to call myself the most vaccinated person on the planet, but um, there are probably other people more vaccinated than me. Now I think there are one or two that I have not had. Whatever the amount, She, and most of us, have had a lot more protective remedies than any generation that came before. Most people didn't live long enough to develop cancer or diabetes. They got injured, either at work or on a farm or on a battlefield, and they developed an infection and they died. And then antibiotics came along and changed that forever. (laughs) And we probably should have treated them like the miracle drugs that they called them from the start. Antibiotics work differently from just about anything we'd been using before. The definition of an antibiotic, as opposed to other kinds of drugs, is that they were originally based on a compound that was made by a living thing. That living thing being a bacteria. They're effectively biological weapons aimed 
by the microbial world at each other. And they were really good at it, right? Like they, were, they, they had millions of years to evolve these weapons against each other, an unthinkable number of iterations. One of which Alexander Fleming notices growing in some mold on a Petri dish. This was back in 1928. Anyhow, Fleming tests the mold and finds it kills pathogens, such as the ones that cause a staph infection. And seeing that that happened, we took them into the lab and we made them into a thing that people could take. Well, not just people. Can you, can you explain to me what the situation has to do with the average size of our chickens? <laughs> yes, I can. A bit of background first. In the 1940s, there was a cod oil shortage. Something you might not know about cod oil, it has this very odd effect of soothing the stomachs of livestock. So the shortage ends up hitting the meat industry, because without the cod oil, animals were getting smaller and less healthy. Farmers needed an alternative. One attempt comes from researchers at a pharmaceutical company. They try feeding the animals vitamin B12. But a strange thing happens. When they use B12 derived from antibiotic production, it not only makes the animals healthier, it makes them bigger too. So from that first discovery that antibiotics could work as they did in chickens, American farmers were giving their animals 500,000 pounds of antibiotics a year. At this point, the chickens that we eat for the most part today are two to three times the size of what they were before that experiment happened. So what's not to like? We're healthy, our animals are healthy all from arming ourselves with a few sturdy strains of microbials. We just assumed that we could sort of like draw a line under evolution and say, right, we've got them now, it's good. <laughs> and then we deployed them against the microbial world, and the microbial world responded by developing antibiotic resistance. Antibiotic resistance is exactly what it sounds like. A bacteria's ability to adapt and to fight. Against the attack of those weapons that we stole from them to start with. But we stole other antibiotics. How about fluoroquinolone, cephalosporins, macrolides, beta-lactams, tetracyclines, sulfamapaxazole trimethoprim, lincosamide, just to name a few. So we've got a larder of protections to lean on, in theory. There's a really famous experiment that was done not very long ago in which experimenters arranged sort of a giant Petri dish and essentially stripes in the growth medium, they put different concentrations of antibiotics, going from almost none to a whole lot of antibiotics at the other end. And then they dropped common bacteria, it might have been E. coli, at the null end and watched what happened. And the organisms got up to the first barrier where there was some drug and most of them died but a few of them didn't die. And then those moved into the next and into the next and into the next until eventually that experimental organism was highly resistant and able to move through all those fields of drug. This experiment, it took 11 days. 11 days. We're not talking about something that has to happen over 100 years. In the United States, more than 48,000 people die every year from antibiotic-resistant infections. Barring any developments, that's a number that's been projected to grow, outpacing cancer as a danger to human life. A large part of our issue is the amount of time a bacteria has to learn our antibiotics. 
Again, we're just entering a battle that's been escalating for millennia. Weapons get outmoded quickly. One solution is to try what the microbial world has been doing and develop more antibiotics. I think I probably thought that there had been a time when drug-resistant infections had been a problem, but we'd gotten new antibiotics or we'd improved policy and it wasn't going to be an issue again, and none of those assumptions turned out to be true. Let's take one of those assumptions, that we had developed new antibiotics. The last big ones, daptomycin and linezolid, were developed in the 1980s, giving bacteria the last 40 years to catch on. But given that we use so many antibiotics, why stop making new ones? One reason, economics. A company entering the antibiotic game has to come well-banked. They need to earn at least $300 million. That's a big bill to float for a drug that can take years to develop. Many of them have no other products. They're working on their first drug, so they've got no other income stream. The stagnant antibiotic pipeline has been a major driving force behind um, this public health crisis that we're facing right now. David Hyun would know. He directs the Pew Research Center's Antibiotic Resistance Project. They look for ways to clear the path for new antibiotic developments. You know, there's more incentive to invest in a drug that's going to bring in a lot more revenue. And in the current market dynamic, um, drugs are valued based on, you know, the volume of sales. And so... um, It's just extremely difficult for investors to see the incentive to, you know, put a lot of research and development of new antibiotics and then maintaining that product uh, production as well. But won't the world just start clamoring over itself for the next miracle drug? When a new brand new antibiotic comes onto the market, you want to make sure that those antibiotics are used only when absolutely necessary, mostly because you want to keep the shelf life of that antibiotic as long as possible. An expensive product you actively restrict sales on. Not the greatest business model in the world. As a result of that, a lot of the pharmaceutical companies have left the antibiotic development market. We could find a way, we could set policies that would make it easier for new antibiotics to enter the market. Things that had a completely different mechanism of action that the microbes have never seen before. But we have to solve those underlying economic problems. But in the meantime, what are we supposed to do when we're feeling ill? Just use what's available regardless? How's that working out? Antibiotics, just like any other drug, carries a certain, not an insignificant amount of risks or side effects. One good example in children that we studied who received sort of the wrong type of antibiotics for ear infections or throat infections or sinus infections um, had up to almost like seven to eight times more likely to develop a side effect called a, a C. diff infection. The same infection that kicked Tignataro in the stomach. You know, 80% of the antibiotics used in the United States and across the world is prescribed not from the hospitals, from in your doctor's offices, in, in your emergency departments, in your urgent care centers. And just in the United States, um, we've shown one out of three of those antibiotics are unnecessary. They're, they're, they're not needed. Antibiotic resistance isn't just made worse by personal misuse. It's further exacerbated by those supersized chickens we keep feeding antibiotics to. Whatever resistance the bacteria builds up in the chickens then has the opportunity to transfer to us when we eat them. 
or if we use their manure to develop our crops. It's a big enough issue that even large farms like Tyson and Purdue have considered departing from the antibiotics field. Purdue's analysis was that they could do a bunch of other things that didn't involve antibiotic administration, things that would be sort of natural antiseptics. So they improved the health of their birds without taking the risk of using antibiotics. And it seems to have worked for them. You know, when we ask, how can we stop courting antibiotic resistance by doing things differently? There's a whole menu of things that that the different realms that use antibiotics could potentially draw from. You know, when I think of a world without uh, antibiotics, I think of a lot more deaths from, from infectious diseases. But I'm wondering, what else comes to mind when you consider the hypothetical scenario where we don't have this tool in our arsenal anymore? Without those effective antibiotics, some of the most simplest surgical procedures may not be that simple anymore. We tend to look at antibiotics as one of the main cornerstones of modern medicine because without it, we could potentially undo all the progress that we've made. If we didn't have antibiotics, it would be a lot more risky to let your kids slide into home plate and risk abrading the skin off their leg. All of those things that were routine companions of childhood in the centuries before the 20th century when we got antibiotics. Those things could be back. After the break, a man in the hospital. Is it food poisoning or a scrape with the past? Stay with us. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Chip has just gotten a text, but it's not a great time to respond. It's 2015, he's orienting himself on a plane out of San Diego, putting his things away as he prepares for a long flight. I was flying to um, Mozambique where I have some collaborations. He has his phone out, tying things up before going into airplane mode, when he gets a text from his friend Stephanie, who at the time was on a cruise with her husband Tom. They're in Egypt. They were there on a vacation, had been wandering around the pyramids, and it was right after uh, that airliner had been shot down over the uh, Red Sea. And so uh, (laughs) they were the only tourists on this 60-cabin barge. Anyhow, Stephanie wasn't writing to tell Chip about the scenery. She said, Tom's having a lot of abdominal pain and seems fairly ill. I'm worried about him. Stephanie thought maybe it was food poisoning. And uh, Tom being in his... uh, mid-60s, and a little overweight. I was just worried that he could get sick quite quickly. And uh, 
uh, didn't want to uh, have things get out of control while they were assuming it was just food poisoning. Stephanie wasn't just reaching out to Chip for a sympathetic ear. She worked alongside Chip, more officially known as Dr. Robert Schooley, at UC San Diego. Chip was an expert in infectious diseases, and no stranger to answering these kinds of questions. But right now, he had to turn his phone off. His plane was about to depart. By the time we landed to refuel in uh, Senegal, I said, uh, you know, I think you need to get him to a hospital fairly urgently. And that's when they had their first uh, interaction with the ship doctor. This guy who saw Tom and thought he was ill enough to give him a dose of antibiotics and uh, told him when he got to Luxor, he should go to this polyclinic. Luxor, the Egyptian city, not the hotel in Las Vegas. Uh, And when he got there, they gave him some uh, fluids and gave him some intravenous antibiotics. And uh, I said to Stephanie, you need to get him out of there. As good as Luxor's clinic was, Chip thought Tom should be checked out in a hospital. So Stephanie and Tom end up flying to Frankfurt in Germany. There, Stefan, a friend of Chip's, was able to take a closer look at Tom. Stefan evaluated him, and it was clear that he had a a big sack of what turned out to be pus behind his stomach, and uh, it was highly drug-resistant to antibiotics. They'd seen that organism in Germany. They had to close ICUs when it would get into an ICU and go from patient to patient. Antibiotic options for this uh, particular organism were really limited, and uh, they really didn't want to see it take over their ICU. The organism is called Acinetobacter bomani. So they put him in an isolation room and uh, worked to get better control of the infection. They knew his convalescence was going to be long. They had to make a decision about whether to stay in Frankfurt or whether to come back to San Diego. Tom and Stephanie returned to San Diego, where the staff at UCSD's hospital can monitor Tom's situation. Surgery wasn't a straightforward option. The surgeons were worried that he was so ill that if they tried to operate on him, he might die. We can treat him with antibiotics as best we can, but these abscess cavities are not things that generally respond well to antibiotics without drainage. Tom became increasingly ill. His kidneys began to fail. He had to be put on to medications we call pressors, which uh, keep your blood pressure up. So that by the beginning of March, he was, uh, he was close to coma. He had drains coming from several of his abscess cavities and uh, was, a real, uh, was a real mess. I was going by and seeing Tom throughout it all, kind of watching this um, slowly uh, moving train wreck. We just had run out of uh, antibiotic options. Intensive care unit physicians were talking about um, pulling back on his medical support and just letting him die because they were pessimistic that he would survive. One of the things you need to be able to do as a doctor is to be able to separate your um, emotional status. You may really be wild about a patient, but you have to be careful not to let that destroy your ability to think rationally. Um, I didn't really think that we really had much we could do that we weren't already doing. As Jack Reacher would say, I was always uh, hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. And as this is going on, Stephanie, Tom's wife, is watching from the sidelines. Like Chip, Stephanie was a medical professional, but this wasn't her area of expertise, leaving her unable to act. There is a uh, library of medicine that the NIH uh, maintains, PubMed, and you can put a pinger in it and say, whenever a new article appears about 
burns or about uh, about pancreatitis, I want you to uh, let me know. And uh, she had one in there about Acinetobacter and a paper from uh, the Republic of Georgia showed up uh, about bacteriophages that were active against uh, Acinetobacter belmonti. Again, Acinetobacter belmonti is the superbug that's put Tom in the hospital and Stephanie on a hunt for a solution. And when she saw that, she called me and said, gee, do you think we could use this to treat Tom? Phages were actually discovered more than a decade before Fleming found penicillin. And while promising, our scientific tools weren't sophisticated enough yet to verify why or when phages would work. Phages were not used uh, in Western medicine, really. Uh, there were some alternative medicine people who would put them on diabetic toes, you know, like eye drops, uh, but uh, you know, use them to treat a seriously ill patient uh, was not done in Western medicine. We had antibiotics, and, and quote, they always worked. Russia took a different approach. Stalin had hoped to develop Russia's own medical practice and had opened a school in the former Republic of Georgia focused on researching what's called phage therapy. It's the institute that pinged for Stephanie. Bacteriophages um, are the most populous thing sitting here with me today. There, you know, uh, there are many more of them than there are me as I'm sitting here talking to you. They're interested in us as a platform to grow bacteria that they can eat. So we have a pretty symbiotic relationship. And uh, the phages themselves are not a danger to people. Now, whether they would be able to help Tom was something that was not at all clear. But uh, we had kind of a common enemy, which was his acinetobacter. So it was kind of the enemy of my enemy as my friend was to boil down to. Without many options, Stephanie asks Chip if they could get one of those phages, one that matches up with the superbug plaguing Tom. From my perspective, uh, it was a long shot. By the same token, Stephanie was very actively involved in his care and uh, thought it would give her something to do, better than you know sitting at the bedside worrying all the time. But before doing anything, Stephanie wanted to check in with Tom, though it would be a one-sided conversation. Tom was in a medically induced coma. And I said, honey, I know you've been biting really hard and you're really tired and if you want to let go, I'll respect that, but I want to grow old with you. And if you squeeze my hand to tell me that you want to live, I will leave no stone unturned. He squeezed my hand hard. After the break, hunting for cures in some pretty disgusting places. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to (laughs) pretend that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. 
What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Welcome back. When we last left Stephanie, she had received what she took to be a sign. It was okay to look for alternatives to help her husband, Tom. The alternative Stephanie and Chip were interested in, a certain type of phage, was located in Belgium under the care of Dr. Jean-Paul Pernay. Jean-Paul said, I'd be glad to send this phage to you. Uh, we can send it over in a diplomatic pouch, but it's already in Texas. I have a colleague in, at Texas A&M named Rye Young. It wasn't long before Rye heard from Stephanie. Have you ever heard the word overdetermined? If she thinks one email will work, 50 will work even better. And she sent me and other people an email trying to find somebody who could provide phages against this horrible bug. Um, and I found it so compelling that I just picked up the phone and called her. I'd had about a decade of actually doing some applied phage biology as a sideline, uh, but we had not done any human therapy. Chipper calls Rye's response as a bit more cautious. But I'm always worried about uh, killing people with it. I, I don't, this is really, I don't know about this. The next day I went into the lab and told the people in the lab, everybody just put their pipettes down and said, what do I have to do next? I mean, it was, Tom was about to be pulled from life support within a couple of days. So that sh- shit has to happen immediately. It's not, academics just don't do this, right? We start the process and we have discussions. We don't know how bad it was, right? All we knew it was he was about to die. But helping Tom and Stephanie was not so straightforward as just sending some random phages to his bedside. Rye would need to receive Tom's ICU-clearing superbug. And Rye's lab isn't just his. He's a university professor. There's students coming in and out of his lab all the time. The essence of the question that was asked me at least twice that next day was, you want to send viruses that are, have to be grown on a deadly bacterial pathogen in your teaching laboratory and send them to inject into a patient in San Diego who is probably going to die anyway. Okay, is that a fair summary of what you want? <laughs> yes or no? The big problem right off the bat was, would they be allowed to send it out and would we be allowed to receive it? Again, Chip has a slightly different recollection of how Rye responded. And finally, Rye said, oh, hell with it. Just send me the bug and I'll see what I can do. In the meantime, I'd gotten in touch with the FDA because uh, you need their permission to do something like this under emerging conditions. A microbiologist at the FDA thought this was an interesting proposal, and so she loops in some scientists at the Navy to see if they have some phages that might match up with Tom's acinetobacter. Phages, unlike catch-all antibiotics, are like incredibly specific keys. For one to help, it needs to match the particular grooves of the illness. Every bacterial pathogen has a different kind of profile. Baumannii is probably the worst one we've ever seen in terms of specificity of its phages. It's very hard to find phages, and those phages are only going to work on the strain you use to look for it. Meaning that both Rye and the Navy would need to see if they could find a single phage among the hundred or so they had in their larder. Some phages were even sourced from elsewhere. Phages live in places where bacteria can go rampant. So one of the first places microbiologists will look is in places where waste accumulates. Yep. Solutions pulled out of the sewers. Of course, if Rye's team in the Navy were going to help Tom, 
All of this needed to happen quickly. They worked 24-7. They actually burned up one of my centrifuges, completely just wore it out, my, my favorite centrifuge. Within a few days, had a handful of uh, five or six phages that were active against Tom's organism. And so we had phages from uh, both places that we could use, but unfortunately, neither place uh, had ever purified them to a state that we could give to humans. That is the absolute weak point of phage therapy. It's not finding phages or, or even making them, but it's purifying them into a way you can use in humans. The process of isolating a phage requires the introduction of what are called endotoxins, something that sits on the outside of a bacteria. And in large amounts, endotoxins can be deadly. So even though they had these unique phages for Tom, they had to be careful that the remaining endotoxins didn't further damage him. The Texan m phages got here about 48 hours earlier. To start using those, um, trying to be cautious and do due diligence, we initially gave their phages into the abscess cavities. So to get here, they've gotten the FDA's approval for a unique medical act. They've sourced viruses from military and academic institutes. They've even looked through piles of human waste. But what happens from here is anyone's guess. I didn't expect any immediate uh, catastrophe. On the other hand, when something's done for the first time, there are things that you can't necessarily foresee. At that point, it would have been a victory not to have hurt him. We didn't see much happen. We saw he didn't have any more dips, but he didn't turn the corner. The Navy phages showed up a couple days later, and uh, at that point, I said to Stephanie, uh, you know, we are in a situation where Tom could die any minute, and if we're going to try it, I think um, we should move and give them intravenously to make sure they get access to all the places that his infection would be. This would be uh, a little riskier because we're getting directly into his bloodstream. She was all for it. She really was gung-ho about doing anything to save her husband's life. We had had a uh, hundred years of experience with antibiotics, and um, we hadn't had experience with uh, intravenous administration of phages. So when we gave the phages to him on Thursday, Stephanie said, well, what do you want to have happen? I said, right now, I want absolutely nothing to happen. I just don't want to have hurt him. And nothing happened. A couple of days later, he was down from three of blood pressure medications to one. When people would talk to me, it was like my brain was coming back online. This is Tom. You know, I lost part of my pancreas and I lost, what do you call it? Well, you're, you have neuropathy, so the bottoms of your feet you can't feel and you have some congestive heart failure. I've got a number of, you know, physical problems, none of which was associated with the phage therapy. So the whole, it was a very celebratory morning. We didn't know what was going to happen after that, but that was an amazing uh, experience. Within the U.S. medical system, Tom's recovery was more or less unheard of. A unique case. Just like prescribing medication from a sewer. Oftentimes people ask me, you know, what was it like? And, you know, I often say, oh yeah, I could taste it. It was really, you know, like sewage, just a joke. <laughs> but the truth is, there was, I had no feeling of it whatsoever. It was just like receiving water. Unlike antibiotics, doctors in the U.S., like Chip and Stephanie, didn't have a century of research to look to. This was new ground. We began to see that uh, there was a there there. And uh, what I did was work with Stephanie. We put together a Center for Phage Research, and uh, we've been working on that 
together for the last uh, five or six years. Things have really picked up since that time. Companies are uh, beginning to spring up. So the whole field has radically changed uh, since that uh, uncertain day. The barge trip that uh, almost ran him aground, but uh, it's good to see him back um, wandering around San Diego and coming to dinner and, uh, and, and being Tom again. That's fantastic having him back. And yeah, I apologize for my ignorance here, but if we were to employ this kind of therapy on a sort of widespread level, what is preventing us from getting into the same situation that we end up with with antibiotics, where you develop this resistance and you kind of go down the same the same road? Well, that's a good question. But here, the drug is alive, right? Tom's wife, Stephanie. It's not like an antibiotic, which is a pill, which is static. Um, the phage and the bacteria are co-evolving. And with um, an estimated 10 million trillion trillion phages on the planet, if you have a large enough phage library, you can just go back to that phage library and match phage to the bacterial mutant. The issue of deploying the library Stephanie's talking about isn't lost on author Marin McKenna. Phages work in a way that runs counter to our medical system. It's something actually that the Food and Drug Administration has really been struggling with for now at least 10 years. If we approve drugs on the basis of, of very large trials in, in which the conditions are as similar as possible, how do you trial something where you have to tune the particular treatment to a particular person? It's likely going to be years before we have a good answer to that question. And in the meantime, the number and severity of those antibiotic-resistant superbugs threatens to keep growing. It's been a decade since Tignataro experienced one of those superbugs. And in a very crazy twist, my stepfather passed away from C. diff 10 years to the day after I took my mother off life support. I took her off life support on March 28, 2012. I took my stepfather off life support March 28, 2022, and he died of C. diff. I'm so sorry to hear that. I am very sorry to... <laughs> have to say that. It was a crazy experience to go from explaining to him what C. diff was in 2012 to actually being with him when he died of it in 2022. It just never, never goes away. Sorry, I'm, 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 I'm going to move on. I feel like I'm just going from like HIPAA violations to personal grief to just like every every version of, of difficult questions I could possibly ask you. Um, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm totally good. You know, it's that very complicated thing of, and it's so hard to say it in, in that I'm oddly thankful I had all of that. I'm oddly thankful I'm finding the good in being so sick and even losing parents. It's so hard to verbalize that, that I don't want to lose my parents. I didn't want to lose my parents, but I that I can see positive things to it in ways that I grow without my parents around. When she was younger, Tig used to eat Snickers, saying that the peanuts in it were good for her. But after her cancer, she decided to become very health conscious cleaning all her old junk foods out of her life. Even that has brought about some unexpected discoveries. And I always tell people that 
I, 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 it's the way that I can, I can, um, connect with and understand like born again Christians because I'm like, oh my gosh, I've seen and experienced this thing that I never imagined. And I try very hard to not push it on anyone. But if someone is interested, man, do I want to tell them about what I know. I don't care if people think I am annoying or any of that. I, I just I just don't care because I feel good. It's again, probably how born again Christians feel. It's like they don't care. I'm not sure how we ended up here talking faith in an episode about antibiotics. But in a way, it's fitting. There's a narrative that if we can just hold out, there'll be a solution ahead, something to fix a catastrophe. But people don't live in the future. They live right now. And what sustains many of them isn't the next wonder drug. It's hope. That very annoying belief we can do and be better than we are, no matter what comes next. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar Lakad. It's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. Our senior producer is Emil Klein. Producer is Lushik Lotus Lee. And associate producer is Fendel Fulton. With additional reporting from Jordan Allen and production support from Zaley Mahan. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Research by Sarah Mathis and Zoe Gruskin. Do you know on antibacterial soap or hand uh, cleaner or whatever it is, when it says it, it kills 99.9% the one that is missing is C. diff. <laughs>